Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We explore how our behaviors and decisions are influenced by the environment and situations that we find ourselves in, and how those influences impact us in often surprising ways. Tim, I have a question for you. Sure. Do you trust your gut? Well, I do when it tells me that I'm hungry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, you got me there. But do you trust your gut when you're making a non-food related decision? For instance, if you're going to trust somebody or in the decisions you make about your kids or which guitar you want to buy? Oh, yeah. Well, I think that while I'd like to say that I'm always fully rational, you know, and that I make decisions after weighing all the pros and cons, and I take all these things into consideration. I know that that wouldn't actually be true. <laughs> yeah, okay, but yes, I, I mean, I often go with my gut feelings, and in, in at least in certain situations, like when I agreed to do this podcast with you. <laughs> okay, okay. So right there, that goes to prove our guest premise, which is you can't always trust your gut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. So very, very true. Our guest today is Seth Stevens Davidovitz. And Seth is an economist and a world-famous data scientist. He's also a New York Times op-ed contributor and a former data scientist at Google, as well as a former visiting lecturer at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. Classic underachiever. Classic, basically. of course. We always have those on the on the show. I don't know why. It's, it's crazy. Another one of those guys. Yeah. And this is Seth's second time on Behavior Grooves. The first time yeah. we had a wide-ranging conversation with him in episode 246 about his first book, Everybody Lies. So, Tim, mm. you know, you, you you lie, you kind of do that. And anyway, it's really, really fascinating. And this time we talked to Seth about his new book, Don't Trust Your Gut. And as always, it was a delight. It sure was. It, talking to Seth is always fun. And we covered a lot of ground talking about trusting your gut or not trusting mm. it in everything from relationships to happiness to if you should grow a beard or wear glasses for your LinkedIn profile picture. Well, I already have both of those, so I'll have to see <laughs> if I need to shave or get contacts. All right, there you go. And as typical with Seth, our conversation was wide ranging fun and filled with lots of great insights and stories. And we're sure that you will enjoy it. Yeah. So with that, we just ask you to sit back and relax and with any wonderful gut elixir of your choosing and listen to our conversation with Seth Stevens Davidovitz. Seth Stevens Davidowitz, welcome to Behavioral Grooves again. Thanks for having me back. It is our pleasure. Kurt, I'm going to get started with the speed round, if that's okay. So you talk in the book about sort of dreaming of athletic talent, you know, maybe even being a basketball player. But if you had to be on an Olympic team, which kind of Olympic team, which kind of Olympic sport would you be on? I'd settle for just about any Olympic sport. <laughs> uh, but... Curling, I got obsessed with curling during the Winter Olympics. Yeah. It's, I think, like a nerd. It's a nerd's game. It's so strategic. <laughs> trying to, you know, plan six moves down the road, where to set up those, uh, the, the pieces. It's, it's like chess, but sport, too. So. And they talk about it with, like, right in front of the other team. It's <laughs> yeah. not like this big secret thing. It's like they're 
talking about, which I find fascinating. Yeah. Well, so. from being from Minnesota, you know, we had the Olympic gold medal winners from Minnesota two Olympics ago, right? Two so, ago, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I didn't even remember that. Yeah. It's, it's a wild game. It is like chess. I was watching, I'm such a nerd that I followed it up with watching videos, trying to understand the strategy. And it's, it is like one of the more complicated games out there. How do you decide where to put a piece yeah. to strategically plan nine throws down the road or something? It's insane. It is crazy. And, and, and it, it's, it's, there's like a lot of, not just the strategy, but there's the skill involved in like the throw and all the other. Yeah. It's not even a throw. I forget what they call it, but you know, yeah, that's, that's what it is. So, all the terminology. Okay. Second question. What is the worst job that you ever had? I have been incredibly spoiled and lucky in my jobs that it's hard. I, I, I didn't love camp counselor, but that just oh. shows how <laughs> privileged my life is when it's your worst job is camp counselor. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel guilty even admitting that it's, it wasn't like picking up horse manure or <laughs> that's not a bad job, by the way. Yeah. Maybe a good job. I don't that's know. That's actually a good job. Yeah. Uh, but I, I kind of divide my, jobs into best and second best and third best and fourth best because they've all been pretty cushy. That's a good problem to have. Yeah. But camp counselor sits towards the bottom. Sits. Yeah. I mean, also I like doing things I'm good at and I was not a particularly good camp counselor. <laughs> That's that we'll explore that on another podcast. Kids okay. didn't want to do curling and you were just like sitting there going, we got to do curling. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, but uh, actually I'm, maybe this is going away from lightning round, but one of the best jobs was obituary writer uh, in high school. I was wow. an obituary writer for my local newspaper and uh, I'm such a dark person. <laughs> I found it very enjoyable. It fit perfectly for you. Huh? Yeah. And I felt like I was good at it. I'm like, I never made mistakes. I took it very seriously. Like I wanted to preserve the memory of these people. So yeah. other people would be sloppy. They'd spell the person's name wrong in their one great obituary. And I never had a mistake. I was took it so seriously. I was friends with all the funeral home guys. So they'd like give me inside tips of things I could add to the obituary. <laughs> oh my God. Do you, it's because of that, do you think about your own obituary? I think it's more that I was drawn to obituary writing because I think about my own obituary. Oh, you so do? Okay. Causality <laughs> went the other way. The causal effect there was yeah. you know, the other way around. Okay. Interesting. All right. Uh, if you had one hour to be a superhero, what would your superpower be? I'd say reading other people's minds, but only when they're not thinking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that could be a superhero, a superpower, but... Yeah, uh, yeah. I just wouldn't want to know what they, their secret thoughts about me, but their secret yeah. thoughts about other things I find very interesting. Because after an hour, it goes away, and you'd be stuck with those things. Like, oh man, Susan just always thought of me this way, and it's like that would burn you. you know? Yeah, could, yeah, that could be burning. Yeah. yeah, and not for my girlfriend because I don't want to know. Like, yeah, um, you definitely don't want to know that. <laughs> that 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 is a that should be blocked um, like, immensely. Yeah, but I find it very interesting to know, like, just what you guys are thinking right now. If you're just like distracted, like, I don't know, I just find that interesting. Yeah, I'm doing a grocery shopping list in my head. So. <laughs> yeah, going a grocery shopping list. No, all right. Last speed round question: What makes people look more competent, a beard or glasses? <laughs> for me it's both beard and glasses <laughs> uh, which, which is an experiment in my new book don't trust your gut and oh, oh okay you have a prop there you go and you got the beard i have glasses and a beard but i don't know the thing is i don't know if this generalizes to the population at large 
a couple of my not so nice friends have teased me that the things that improve my appearance basically hide my face. Uh, both the beard and the glasses are wow. getting distracting people from my true features. So uh, I don't know. Well, all right. So first off, just tell our listeners what this field experiment was, because it was it's yeah. kind of fun. And, yeah, and then- so there's all this research in, in sciences on how much your appearance influences your life outcome. So Alex Todorov, I don't know if you guys have had him on the show. Uh, you should. He, he's written an amazing book, Face Value. Just super fun. All these fascinating things about how much your face influences how people perceive you, including that you can predict 70% of uh, congressional races just by asking people which candidate looks more competent. Mm, uh, the one wow. that they say wow. looks more competent uh, wins 70% of the time, which is kind of sad and a little dark. But he's also done studies and other people that how you look, how competent you look, how attractive you look can vary a lot based on you know whether you smile, whether you don't smile, uh, whether you have glasses, not glasses. Uh, beard, no beard. So I did a little experiment on myself where I, there's artificial intelligence, uh, face app. You can create, I create a hundred versions of myself, beard, no beard, glasses, no glasses, smile, no smile. I had pink hair in one of them. I had gray <laughs> hair in another. I had a shaved head in some of them. And I uh, ranked them. I asked people on this survey platform how confident I look. And I found out that basically two things improve my confidence, uh, glasses, and beard and nothing else matters except pink hair. I get a big uh, loss of confidence, which wasn't so surprising. I probably could have didn't need the data to tell me that, you know, but the other things, the glass, nothing else matters. Just glasses and beard were the huge confidence. Like you and AJ Jacobs, like the ultimate experimenters in your life. Oh yeah. yeah. (laughs) I'm a good friend of AJ uh, as well. And a big fan of his. So uh, maybe that hang around him had had me in that mindset of, uh, yeah. It, it doesn't surprise me. Okay, so we're here to talk about your new book, Don't Trust Your Gut. Let's just make sure that we get that don't out there uh, right up front. And this is kind of the antithesis of Malcolm Gladwell's blink, you know, in some ways where, right, there's this instantaneous reaction, like we make these gut judgments and that they're good. Tell us about this. Is there a more nuanced story to this or is it just stop trusting, just whatever you feel, go against it? Yeah, I think it's more nuanced than that because both my books, Everybody Lies and Don't Trust Your Gut, I think they're both great titles. They were both picked by the publisher after I finished writing the book. Ah, and they're never oh, exactly what you were saying. I, I think I always, I made some edits, like added, I don't think I'd use the word gut in the entire draft <laughs> of the book. So after we came up with this title or they came up with this title, which I thought was great, you know, I, I I thought it was a great title, but I'm like, I just added a few sections. So don't trust your gut here because I think the the book is less about, you know, there have been studies that sometimes your intuition is really good. If you're a firefighter yeah. uh, who's worked in a similar envi- environment for many, many years, uh, your brain has pattern recognition abilities and can tell you whether there's a fire, you know, even when it's not at the level of consciousness and chess players can kind of see things in a board that they're not consciously aware of that can influence your decision. So when to trust your gut, when not trust your gut, it's a little more subtle. But I think what I did want to do in this book is there's just so much data out there to help us make decisions. And for kind of the big decisions we're we're making in life, you know, how we're choosing a romantic partner or, you know, how we parent or how we spend our time, where we live, 
I think most of us, I would argue, are basically winging it. Like none of us are looking at data, like reading studies, you know, like we're just like, yeah, yeah. I talk to a couple of friends, maybe read a couple of books that are darn really based on that much. And then we, that's how we make our big decisions. And I want to point people out that there's just an explosion of data now that has to lead to better decision-making to utilize all the data that's out there. So that, that was more the point of the book, I would say, Uh, just make use of the data out there, but I think make use of the data out there isn't quite as catchy as don't trust your gut. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would agree with you there. I would trust my gut on that um, uh, inference that you have there. So, um, but with that, you you talk about you know some of the different things and romantic partners and different elements along that. And, and actually, what you're finding in some of those is that the data doesn't really have a lot to kind of direct you in a certain way, at least in romantic partnerships and some of those. In others, it does. Was there anything that you found in the book that was really surprising to you? Because you brought in a lot of really great research from a, a lot of different researchers. Is there anything that really like, yeah, I kind of knew that, or but no, this blew me away? I think definitely some of the data on rich people from text data researchers, you know, like they say, the t- they did, they studied the entire universe, the paper capitalist in 21st century, the entire universe of uh, tax records, the top 1%, top 0.1%, people making more than $1.58 million per year. And they say a typical rich American is owner of an auto dealer or a regional business, such an auto dealer, beverage distributor. And that, you know, auto dealers, I kind of heard a little bit about beverage distributors. I didn't know what, I legitimately didn't know what they were, uh, which <laughs> Another thing I learned in writing this book is people, you got to be so careful what you write. I wrote a New York Times column saying I didn't know what a beverage distributor was. And I went kind of viral on the internet for being an idiot. Uh, like Harvard PhD doesn't know the basics of the, how the economy works and some other things I said. And I had spent 15 years building a reputation as like some sort of genius. And overnight I went genius to what? idiot. <laughs> uh, but that was kind of, I d- delve into some of the data on, on Bridgefield market research. I had no idea it was such a good field, which you really see in the data. But I think one of the things I, I wanted to do in this book, there's so much pressure when you write a book, when you write an article, when you write a research paper, shock me, surprise me. Yeah. And we know yeah. from the replication crisis that a lot of shocking and surprising findings just aren't true. And I tried to avoid that pressure in this book to just tell people what the data says, you know, pay no attention to whether whether it's shocking, not shocking, whether people would have guessed it, not guessed it, just always present the data uh, because it was it's more likely to be true than if you're always feeling this pressure, I got to blow everyone away with, with shocking findings. I think the unpredictability of relationships I also found pretty yeah. surprising that <laughs> – there, there's a study that was led by Samantha Joel. It included 86 scientists, 11, more than 11,000 couples. They had hundreds of variables, anything you could measure on them. And they were trying to predict what predicts romantic happiness. And to a, to a large degree, it, it's a surprisingly unpredictable. I, it's not like predicting the weather tomorrow. It's more like predicting the weather four weeks from now, Yeah, uh, which is kind of you have these chaotic systems. It's not that it's not predictable at all. And I say that there are some things yeah. that do up the odds a little bit. Uh, but that was kind of surprising. You could imagine you get that data set and it's just, these are the traits. You know, if you get, if you marry someone with these traits, you're really rock solid chance. And it seems to be like, yeah. chaotic. Uh, 
that, you know, that you look good on paper, bad on paper is not, it's, you know, again, you can up the odds a little bit, but there's so much going on. And some of the researchers think that it is, it may be like a chaotic system, like the weather where slight changes in initial conditions change yeah. on track or off track, oh, wow. uh, which yeah. is kind of interesting. Well, what I found fascinating about that, and I have to tell listeners, so I shared some of this book with my 12-year-old daughter as we were, you know, sitting around and we had like time to kill and I was reading passages from this and she found it very fascinating. But the, this idea about the romantic partnerships in the long term, but there was definite deficient um, patterns that you could determine about matching on social media dating sites that, again didn't necessarily correlate to that long-term relationship piece. And that for me was, I think, fascinating as well. It's like what initially attracts you isn't necessarily what is going to lead to that long-term happiness, as you said. For sure. I think it shows we're all kind of idiots in how we date. <laughs> uh, you know, not, there's obviously a little difference. You know, sometimes on dating sites, people are looking for short-term flings, sexual yes. encounters. And maybe if you ranked satisfaction and a short-term fling, things like physical attractiveness uh, would correlate a lot higher. But for sure that, you know, I viewed it as the ultimate market inefficiency where people are, <laughs> people are predictably competing over these traits that aren't leading to long-term happiness, that if you can care less about these things, you know, dating is not going to be that hard. If you, if you're, let's say a heterosexual woman and you're trying to date a six foot two a wealthy, gorgeous firefighter, like, uh, you know, you're going to have a hard time and you may find that you're single much of your life and you're complaining, you know, why is the date dating so hard? If you're trying to find someone who's nice and has some good psychological traits and makes you feel good about yourself and you enjoy spending time with, you may all of a sudden find dating's not that hard. Uh, so, you know, so there's kind of, you know, if you can kind of realize that your brain's tricking you in many ways to go after these, these characteristics that aren't, you know, correlate with long-term happiness, I think uh, you can definitely have an easier time of it, an easier go of it. And keep in mind that the data is telling you, you're really not you might be like, oh, my God, it's so unfair. You know, we get to music. I want Jesse's girl. Jesse's girl's. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. Jesse, I wish I had Jesse's girl. Je uh, Jesse's girl's really hot. And my girl isn't hot. And you can be justified in the data that Jesse's not any happier. That's the name of the song, right? Jesse. Yeah. Jesse's, Jesse's girl. girl. Yeah. yeah. I wish I had Jesse's girl. Yeah. You know that Jesse's girl may be a 10. Uh, of 10 and physical attractiveness, but there's no, Jesse may be totally miserable uh, with right. his beautiful girl. So, uh, you know, I think keeping that in mind can be freeing uh, as you go through dating. So I, I still go back to how Shankar Vedantam's book about useful delusions. He said, you know, one of the best things about his own relationship is, uh, is being a little bit delusional, you know, with his wife, you know, about, about exactly what her qualities are. There's this suspended animation that something as simple as that could, I don't know if it's not predictive, but you know, could, could help. Yeah. 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 I'm sure. Uh, well, and then the other thing in the data that's so clear in the romantic relationships is the biggest predictor of your happiness in a relationship is your happiness outside a relationship. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, right. so if you're miserable and you're hoping that, and I, I don't say that to speak, you know, 
dismissively of miserable people. I admit in the book that I went through periods in my life where I struggled with, you know, deep psychological problems and depression, but, uh, you know, so it's, 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 it's nothing, it's no fault of the person, but if you can get to a point where you're more comfortable in your own skin, you're happier, you're in a good place, then you're, you're probably going to find yourself much happier in your romantic relationship as well. So uh, there's also some justification for working on yourself a little bit uh, in the in the data, I would say. Yeah. yeah. You love, you're a nerd. You love big data. But you also kind of say that big data doesn't apply to everything. And uh, this, I just found that really kind of wonderful. But are there areas where you feel like when it comes to big decisions, we should we should necessarily be looking at big data? Sometimes the big data tells you to not think about the data so much. So <laughs> that goes back to romance. Yeah. Where they say, try to predict future relationship happiness. So we know how happy you are now. You know, you know, you say I'm happy now or I'm happy now. Are you going to be happy in two years, three years, four years down the road? And if you're happy now, you're more likely to be happy in the future. If you're unhappy now, you're more likely to be unhappy in the future. Everything else about you and your partner is irrelevant for predicting future happiness. So how many of us are like, you know, trying to write down or in our head, you know, okay, but, you know, he or she, we do we share the same hobbies? Do we have the same religious backgrounds? Do our parents, were we raised similarly? And all these factors don't seem to matter at all. So all you can do is say, do I feel good with this person? Yes or no? <laughs> which is <laughs> and, great, right? Yeah, which is kind of freeing. It is. It, it is. And particularly when you think about all of the preconceptions that we have about that, that this idea that if you're coming from two very different family styles, that that will never work because we're just two different people or, you know, different religion background or different whatever that would be. And yet the data doesn't support that says, no, it, does, it it's still just kind of a roll of the dice and go with your gut. Right. On that. One. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, yeah, I guess the, the book is. Don't trust your gut unless the data tells you to trust your gut. <laughs> uh, and for, for romance, I'd say there's a lot of truth to that, that if you feel good with that person, they're, you're happy, you're enjoying your time, don't overthink it. You know, and if you're not happy, similarly, if you're not happy, don't overthink it. People make the opposite mistake. They say, you know, we're, I'm not happy, but look at us on paper. Uh, this has <laughs> to work. We went to the same college. We ha- have the same friends. We... Yeah, are, have the same religion, are in the same occupation, yeah. you know, have the same politics. We're a perfect match. Same yeah. hobbies. Yeah, we're a perfect match. And then it's, but but there's only one problem. I'm miserable. <laughs> yeah, right. uh, and that, the data right. says, is overrules everything else. And yeah. kind of, you just have to cut your losses. Yeah. yeah um, you uh, have sort of a, if I can characterize you this way and correct me if I'm wrong, sort of a natural skepticism. You have this lovely ability to question things. Do you think skepticism is underrated in in, Uh, in our world? I mean, in some areas, I think there are some areas where kind of the useful delusions of (laughs) Bangladesh, if you're always skeptical about your partner, I think that would be, you know, that takes some away some of the magic of life. I do think that, some of the things people are telling you, I think there are, you know, sometimes, you know, I'm an economist, so I'm thinking a lot about incentives and sometimes why is someone telling me this? Why is someone wanting me to do this, giving me this advice? I sometimes question uh, whether our incentives are un- aligned, but 
you can definitely take the skepticism too far. And a lot of people <laughs> just are nice people who are trying to help you out and connect with you. And I wouldn't recommend going through life thinking about all the ways they're trying to screw you or anything. Uh, but I, I do also have skepticism, a lot of skepticism towards scientific research, uh, which, you know, we have this replicability crisis in psychology. And I, I think that I, I tr- one of the things I tried to do in this book, and I don't know if anybody appreciated this, maybe it was just for me and about five other people. But, you know, when, when people say they have an evidence-based book, usually I find what that means is you have something you want to say, and then you just find a study to confirm <laughs> what you want to say. And you can find a study to tell you anything. And what I really wanted to do in this book was not that. Uh, instead, to find the best studies. And once I believe the methodology, just be like, here's what it says, you know, whether or not it confirmed what I wanted to say or not. Before I wrote this book, I had zero idea what I was going to say on any of these topics. <laughs> that's, that's great. That's really cool. Yeah. So in in, in the book, you reference um, the Mappiness Project, the, yeah. the research done by George uh, McCarran and Susanna Morato. If I mispronounce their names, I apologize. But really interesting stuff with the, that Mappiness Project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Tell the listeners what that is? Yeah. And, and, and you know, again, what does it say? <laughs> yeah. So it's it was Again, with happiness research, that that's an area where I was really skeptical. I'd read a lot of these studies and, you know, even famous studies, you know, the methods for happiness research, I think, I don't blame the researchers. I think they were working with the best methods of the time, which is you'd bring a bunch of students into your classroom and you'd do a little experiment on them. And then you'd make these global generalizations about how to be happy, which you know, seemed to me kind of dicey. And then I was just reading around and I found, I came across something about the, the Mappiness Project and I called up uh, George, Mc, or I Zoomed George, it was during COVID. So I Zoomed with George McCarran. I'm like, your project's amazing. Like, I want to learn everything about this. And he kind of alerted me to some of their cooler papers and uh, all this cool stuff they had done. And the basic thing is they ping people on their phones and they ask you, who are you with? Uh, what are you doing? And how happy are you? And they built a data set, more than 60,000 people, more, uh, more than 3 million happiness points. Yeah. Uh, and it just blew me away. And I, you know, I hope that other people would appreciate it as well, just how revolutionary I think it is in this happiness. And some of the, the studies are just super cool of, uh, you know, the sport, the effects of a sporting event. This was a, a study with McCarran and Peter Dalton, uh, where they look at, what happens when your sports team wins or loses? And when the team wins, you get 3.8 points of happiness. And when your team loses, you lose 7.6 points of, of, of pleasure, which wow. is so awesome. And only could be done with this enormous data set where they have, because they have 60,000 people, they have a whole bunch of sports fans following different games. And uh, it was just like, just one study after another. I'm like, this is so much cooler in my opinion than, than many of the other uh, studies. And, you know, I included a bunch of charts from their work that, you know, that I thought really would be useful for someone as they're going through life. Uh, the happiness activity chart, which I got as a cover for my iPhone, uh, <laughs> has 40, 40 activities ranked by how much happiness they're expected to bring. And, uh, you know, just, just keeping that in mind as you're going through your life, like, you know, if, if you're not happy, ask yourself, what percent of your day are you doing the, the things at the top of that chart? Yeah. Uh, and my guess is a lot of unhappy people would say would 
very, very low percent of their day is spent in these happiness producing activities. So when I read that, one of the things that that came to my mind being from Minnesota and our sports teams that tend to lose a lot. I, I was wondering if there was correlation between an area's happiness and the, you know, how good their sports, you know, teams are in, in general elements. So, well, there's a kicker to that research, which you would say, okay, the, the answer is just re- root for a great team. And then you, you know, even if you're only getting 3.8 points and losing from the wins, losing 7.6 or whatever from the losses, you'll get, have so many more wins that you'll overcome that. But then they found that if your team's really good, you just get much less pleasure from the wins and much more pain (laughs) from the losses. So, you know, even a team, you know, a Celtics supporter, you'd say that they've been just crushing it because they've been good for so many years, you know, decades of great basketball, but no, they, you know, now the the Celtics fans are all miserable because they just lost the (laughs) the NBA finals uh, so it's it's kind of it seems like the sports trap is just almost impossible to escape. <laughs> never, uh, never win. Never yeah, win. Well, you no. never win, which I recommend. What does seem to give people happiness is just watching the sports in general. And the way I reconcile that difference is that the key is watching sporting events of teams you don't care about. So, yeah. You know, watching, if I don't care about the Celtics and the Warriors, I just watch them play. It's like, oh, those players are amazing. It's really fun. It's like watching an art show or something, which also gives people a lot of happiness you see in the data. And you're not stuck by, you know, caring so much about the outcome. But but let's cut to the chase. Uh, when it comes to the number one thing that brings happiness, I think that just to help listeners, you know, lock in on one thing at the very top of the list, can you share the, the results? It is uh, intimacy and making love. Uh, so <laughs> having sexual encounters, I guess, is a number one activity, which uh, it, initially I'm like, wait a second. So you're pinging people on their phone <laughs> and they're stopping <laughs> having sex to answer your survey. Yeah. I'm like, who does this? And and then I'm like, this is even more incredible because this it must be really bad sex. And still it's the number <laughs> one act, uh, activity. But actually that's a little exaggeration because- you can, you can respond to the ping up to 60 minutes afterwards and just say what you were doing oh. and how happy you are. So it's not people who are legitimately <laughs> They didn't stop in the middle. Of, in the uh, middle, necessarily. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a few did, but uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you know, the happiness research, I think one of the things I took from it, and I'd be curious if kind of, I think one of, one of the things I like about just putting those charts in the book is it allows everyone to come to their own conclusions. So yeah. Some people yeah. Are, are just like, oh, pets care ranks a lot lower than I would have guessed or, you know, just whatever you see in that data, that's, you know, I kind of leave it to the, to the reader to say what really stands out for them and people, all kinds of people have come to different uh, interpretations. Uh, But one of the things that kind of struck me in the data is it wasn't so shocking. It didn't blow my mind. None of it, you know, you get to what was most surprising. Okay. Sex being the most enjoyable activity, I don't think is going to blow anyone's mind. Uh, (laughs) You know, the, the fact that hanging out with friends does really well and being sick in bed does really poorly and doing chores and standing in lines and being in meetings does very low. You know, that, that's not so shocking. But then I was kind of thinking about it and there's almost a profundity in the obviousness of the happiness research mm-hmm. because so few of us do these obvious things that make people happy that, uh, you know, like having sex, uh, hanging out with our friends, going on a hike, going on a walk. You know, these are things that aren't, they're not 
rocket science. They're not that expensive. You know, all of us could do probably more of them. And yet we don't, we kind of get tricked by modern life in many ways uh, into doing these things that aren't paths to happiness. Well, it, it reminded me of uh, some of George Lowenstein's work on, on sex when he looked at the differences, the gender differences between uh, wanting sex and enjoying sex. And I don't know if you're familiar with this, Sam, but, but it, it was really interesting that that intuitively men wanted sex more than women, but women actually enjoyed sexual experiences more than men. So this this wanting and enjoying were were on separate scales, and and they didn't line up. It wasn't because you want it more that you enjoy it more. It was that was rather counterintuitively sort of the opposite of it. Yeah, uh, I think, and I think there's a lot of that just that. I think one of the things that's striking in the data is we sometimes mistake a comfortable activity from an enjoyable activity. Yeah. So lying on a couch watching Netflix is comfortable. You know, it's easy. It doesn't take any energy. You know, going on a hike can be a little uncomfortable. Sex can be a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. Uh, you know, you, it's, it's weird. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, you know, uh, carry, singing karaoke can be a little uncomfortable. But those things tend to be really enjoyable. And then, uh, you know, I think uh, you know, one of the things that yeah, was striking the data is that these passive, relaxing, comfortable activities tend to give us, tend to rank pretty low in the happiness activity charts and a lot lower than we might have guessed. I did a study with Spencer Greenberg where he just asked people to predict what the chart would look like. And a lot of the overrated activities, people thought people would be happy doing them are these passive activities, resting, relaxing, watching TV, browsing the internet, uh, you know, things that, you know, you, yeah, you can do on your couch. They seem really simple, seem really comfortable. If you actually ping people, they tend to say, actually, I'm not that happy doing this. I, I you know, and then you know, something like going on a hike, you know, beforehand, people would say, uh, you know, it's a lot of energy. It's, 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 it's too much work. But then you ping people while they're on that hike. They're like, yeah, this is great. Yeah. It reminds me, we talked with Nick Epley, and he was talking about the the research that he was doing about talking to strangers on a commute, on a train. And and again, he asked people, all right, do you think this would be a, a pleasant and positive experience? Or would you rather be sitting reading your book or whatever it is? And most people said, no, I'd rather read my book or I'd rather, you know, just sit there and enjoy my my solitude or whatever it is. But in the end, when he had people do it and not do it, found that when people talked to strangers on the train, they had, uh, they reported, you know, much better results from that than what they did. Again, to very similar to what you're talking about here. Yeah. So. I think we also, another thing that's interesting about happiness, that I didn't get too much into in the book that I kind of wish I did is everyone said, a lot of people have kind of come back now that the book's out. They say, you know, they've looked at these charts but they're like, this is average. So what about me personally? So I actually do do love reading. You know, presumably people who've read my book are a biased sample of human beings that I would hope would get a higher <laughs> score for reading than the average score, which was pretty low. Uh, I, couldn't, I couldn't deny it. I said that one of my happiness hacks may be to put down my book because it ranks pretty low on the yeah. happiness it gives people reading a book. And, you know, I I think there's probably, there's definitely some truth to that. There's some individual variation for sure. You know, there are some people who, uh, you know, who, if, if when I was really out of shape, uh, hiking was a miserable activity. I'd be out of breath, uh, when I'd be on those hikes. And I don't, you know, I think if you pinged me, I'd say I was really miserable and, uh, you know, there, there's some individual variation, but I suspect 
that we exaggerate the degree of individual variation. There have been studies Mm -hmm. where they've looked at introverts and extroverts and how much of a boost, a happiness boost they get from being around other people. And they found that introverts and extroverts both get the identical large boost from being around other people in in their mood. Uh, Even though if you ask introverts, many of them are going to say, I crave solitude. I'm really happy being by myself. So I do suspect, I I actually, I want to do this or I want someone else to do this. Some of these studies would be really interesting. For example, weather, you know, I know you guys are, I guess, Minneapolis people. So I'm sorry, there's a sore spot. but uh, I do suspect a lot of people tell me that they don't care about the weather or they love seasons. You know, they, they wouldn't like it if it's 80 degrees and sunny. And it'd be really interesting to do a similar, you know, do a mappiness like project on people with very different ideas about how much weather influences their mood and see Mm. whether it's true, whether people are accurate. So the people who say they love seasons or love cold, are they really getting that? Is that true? Or are they just like the introverts who say they don't need to be around other people or they get great joy with solitude, are they fooling themselves? And I suspect that a lot of times when we think we're different than the, these average, the average, uh, we're fooling ourselves. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep fooling myself about that weather because <laughs> I'm not moving anytime soon. So I, I will keep telling myself that, yeah, seasons matter. Cold is great. All that kind of the stuff. The Vikings so are going to win one of these years. Oh, <laughs> Again, you can delude ourselves all the time, but it's all right. Seth, you, uh, you're a geek. You love big data. Have you converted to dataism? <laughs> uh, yeah. So dataism is this concept of uh, Yuval Noah Harari. Yeah. That uh, it's a new religion. He said, where we're going to, uh, you know, we, he said we went originally, the major religion society was kind of belief in God, Christianity or Judaism, uh, other religions. And then we switched to humanism, which was kind of the, in many ways, trusting your gut, the value of your feelings to make yeah. sense of the world. And he said, we're moving to a new religion that is dataism, which is faith in data. And, I think I'm mostly a believer with caveats Okay, that, you know, (laughs) I think that, so don't trust your gut was, I think the early innings of dataism in that, you know, we're just starting to accumulate enough data to really help us making these decisions, these decisions. So the mappiness project, I think was a revolutionary project in helping us understand happiness but there are still more things to consider that I think eventually will, like individual variation. How much individual variation is there? How much do these effects differ in the long term? Uh, so my advice at the end of the book, which is a little tongue in cheek, was I said the data driven answer to life based on these studies, largely mappiness, some other ones. Uh, the data driven answer to life uh, is to be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day overlooking a beautiful body of water having sex. Uh, because that kind of all, if you look at all the charts, that's kind of where it converges. Sex is uh-huh. the happiest activity. Romantic partner is the happiest company. 80 degrees and sunny is the happiest weather. <laughs> Being by water is the happiest place, particularly when it's beautiful. So everything converges to basically sex on a beach. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. now, I feel like it's a Bill Murray comment from Groundhog Day or something. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now, of course, speaking of Groundhog Day, if you try to live your life just every day with sex on a beach, would you get bored of it? Would it wear right, off? Right. Uh, would you find yourself 
craving reading a book uh, or other activities. Now, we don't really know that from the data necessarily. So that's, you know, you could imagine combining this with some long term. I think everybody would be wise to do more of the things that give short term enjoyment. But, you know, at some point, there probably is a balance between, you know, sometimes we appreciate, I'm I'm not sure if you guys have had Paul Bloom on the show, but he's written about the sweet spot and, you know, there's a certain amount of pain you want to appreciate the pleasure. But a lot of Paul Bloom, I, I really love his his work and his book. But I think that those are ultimately, as a dataist, those are ultimately empirical questions. I'd want to see the data. <laughs> what exactly is the sweet spot? Where is it? Yeah. How far? How much sex on the beach? Like, <laughs> <laughs> how much is too much? How much is not enough? Yeah. And how much is not enough? Where spot? is it? Yeah. And, you know, like all those questions. Uh, we're not there yet, so we kind of have these vague notions of. Well, you know, you like a little pleasure. You like some pain. You like some pleasure. Yeah, but where exactly is that point? I think ultimately we could get to a point where we really did understand that. Uh, so I think, I think everybody, hopefully, could use some of the data I'm I'm talking about uh, in the book to improve their lives right now. With no, you know, if you just if you're on the fence between walk with friends. And lying on the couch watching Netflix. You're like, this is a close decision. I don't know which one to go, go with. Get your ass off the couch. Yeah, go with the data. <laughs> you know, be enough of a dataist yeah. that you can go on that walk. You can do that today. We don't need any more data. It's been proven, I think, beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's the more likely path to happiness. If you're, as I said, perpetually single and you're always trying to date the most beautiful person who everybody else is trying to date. Yeah. I think without a, you know, no doubt, go with the data, you're dating wrong. Like get over that a little bit and try to find someone nicer, someone who's just nice and makes you feel good uh, and downweight some of these shiny characteristics. Go with data right now on that. Date the short guy. You know, date, well, the, date, short the, short, date yeah. the short guy. Your old pal, date, date. I would think that your old pal, Logan Yuri would be yeah, down with she, that. Yeah, yeah, so Logan's a good friend of mine. And she, we yeah. talked about this. I think our advice converged in many ways in similar areas. Because I think when you look at the data, uh, you get, you know, she has a great book, How to Not Die Alone, that you know, <laughs> I think makes similar points yeah. and is kind of a deeper dive into some of these, you know, some of the data and science on dating. So, you know, right away, we can use the data to improve, to improve some of your outcomes. I think in 10 years, in 15 years, I could imagine it way more advanced where you could really like design a day just based on data. You know, maybe there's, there'll be a computer program that will tell you what you should do in a given moment where it's mappiness writ large. And everybody is constantly telling telling some program what they're doing and their mood and they're getting all these insights. I don't, I don't know. I'm not saying it's going to happen. It's, it's, it's going to be call on that your... the matrix. <laughs> yeah. It, it might be a little creepy. I don't know, but, I just, but or just whatever it is, maybe that's a little, little strong. I think it's going to get w- way more powerful Yeah. Uh, in, in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. So I think we're at the early stages already. There are big insights, but yeah. there's just more coming. Uh, down the road, kind of a kind of just just because there's so much more data than we, you know, some of the data yeah. I couldn't have written this book 10 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
I mean, you think about that though too, right? There is a little bit of creepiness in that, but there is a lot of value that could come out of that for people just to curate their life so that they are have happiness long-term. I could see having our fancy new uh, AR Google glasses or whatever that kind of point out like, all right, where you are and what you're doing. I mean, who knows, 10, 15 years? We'll have a whole thing that'll just will be led through life to to maximize our pleasure. So there you and, go. Yeah, maybe neuroscience will figure out like we don't even have to ask people, "Are you happy?" We'll have something on our heads that is telling <laughs> us in our brain whether we're feeling pleasure. And wow, wow! I love the story. You bring up the story of Bruce Springsteen having to leave his small New Jersey town to get out and get seen. You know, he needed to sort of test his metal uh, with, you know, broader audiences in order to get to the next level in the music industry. And I'm just, uh, this is maybe, this is maybe a little hypothetical, but in the world today with YouTube and Spotify and millions of artists, you know, around the world trying to get famous, do you think that there's a, a similar model or is, would data lead us to different conclusions today for the striving artist? I think that there might be slight differences in the way to make ways to make it, but the idea that you dramatically up your odds of success in art by hustling is a hundred percent true. And there are so many Bruce Springsteen. So Bruce Springsteen kind of was in, I guess, Asbury Park and you know playing in these little bars, and he'd hear people on the radio, and he'd go, "I don't get it. We're as good as them. Why are they on the radio?" And he had this great insight that I'm in Asbury Park and nobody's coming down. Nobody's looking for the next great artist because mm-hmm. everyone's not, if you're a talent scout, everyone's knocking on your door trying to get in. So kind of hoping that somehow the world's going to discover you without hustling is a huge mistake that so many artists make. A lot of my friends are like, we need to show this data to my buddies from my childhood home who are never hustling and just whining about how everybody else is making it big and they're doing the same things over and over again and not getting discovered. So I think, you know, it might be a a little different, but the idea that making it in art is virtually impossible if you don't hustle and it's, and it may be a lower, it may have better odds than you'd suspect if you do hustle like crazy. So I'd say more like today, more the hustling than the particulars mm-hmm. is, I think, what the what I take away from the data that just it's not a merit. It's not a full on meritocracy. The world's <laughs> not coming to Asbury Park to find you. No, nope. you got to meet meet the people you net. And a lot of that is also networking, which I think there have also right. been studies showing the value of networking in art. And that I think whatever era we're living in. You, they're gonna. They're if you're friends with someone, they're gonna share your your stuff on Twitter, and they're gonna talk about you. So yeah, uh, yeah. you know, the last time we talked, you um, you talked about your love of Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, and I'm just wondering, do you think that the world has an appetite for that for their work if they were brand new today, if they were competing with Billie Eilish? <laughs> I like to think so. It's it's not the world, so it's always just. There, I think one of the, one of the things I was surprised in the data was the number of independent artists who are in the top one percent, even the top point one percent. You know, I we kind of think that it's a winner take all market, and that you know Jay Z we know is worth hundreds of millions of dollars, and Billie Eilish and these others, but 
I think what the data says is that there are a bunch of people who have kind of their little fan base. It's not, which is enough to make a living. It's kind of Kevin Kelly's, I think, idea of 1,000 true fans. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, I don't know if Bob Dylan would become the most famous artist in the world, but I think you'd get, I think, yeah, if you're that talented and and you hustle, Dylan, of course, got <laughs> out of uh, Hibbing, Minnesota and to New York City, which is a much better way to be discovered and be found. So And it worked. Yeah. So if you're willing to hustle and you're and, and you're that talented, I think you still will make it big. But but it's 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 always even Leonard Cohen, you know, Leonard Cohen was never as big as I don't know, probably like Metallica. No. Uh, oh, yeah. Not even close. Yeah. So it's it's always a niche market. And he was big in a lot of European markets. I think Norway really loved him. And I think all the Scandinavian countries pretty much. So, so it's, it's always you got to find your audience. But if you're talented and you're hustle, if you're that talented and you do hustle, I think you, you will find an audience. I think Leonard is an interesting case study, too, because he kind of got, you know, he'd been doing that for years and years and years. And, and his popularity really grew like when he was in his 60s and 70s. I mean, that was when he started to get more uh, popular than when he was in his 30s. So it's it's an interesting role to think how that happens over time as well. I think there's a number of different factors of, of that. And again, you probably would agree with this. I think there's a lot of, yeah, the more you hustle, the more you network. Part of that is just chance, right? It is like who hears you then who puts you on whatever label or who plays you in whatever time. And there's a, there's an element of luck that comes into all of this. So who knows? Leonard Cohen might've made a big earlier uh, if he started today because of some chance encounter at some place, you know? Yeah. And I mean, another big thing in art that I talk about the data on as well is putting your work out there into the world, uh, which a lot of artists don't do. Yeah. Uh, you know, it was hard for, Leonard Cohen to get, I think various positions was his album that had hallelujah on it. Yeah. And I think Columbia records didn't want to put it out there. They said that, I think it was the executive said, we know you're great, Leonard. We don't know if you're any good. Uh, like basically <laughs> we get that, you know, the hallelujah referencing the Bible and King David and, you know, all these things like we get it you have all these references and this great poetry, but you, people aren't dancing along the way they're dancing along to Metallica or even Bruce Springsteen. Oh, I really loved her. And then uh, there was a story about Hallelujah's success, which took many, many years and had a lot of chance encounters. And I think he was helped by other people covering it and bringing new perspectives on it and getting more attention to it. It, it took a while for that song to be judged a masterpiece. Yeah, covering yeah. it, changing it, shortening it, and yeah. you know, changing. It. Yeah, that's it's amazing when you you look at that trajectory of all of that. Um, really, yeah. really fascinating stuff. Yeah. So Tim Buckley, even after Tim Buckley's cover, af- I mean, after Tim Buckley died, that was it, Hallelujah took off even after Tim Buckley had recorded it and 
died. It it is it is kind of weird. Well, it all it all comes down to Shrek. I mean, come on, that's oh, you know, <laughs> it got in the Shrek soundtrack. Therefore, it it grew huge. So I loved go. that you kind of co opted Luther Ingram's song. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. Uh, in yeah. your dedic- in your dedication, I was wondering. Uh, we the conversations we've had about music. You've never mentioned Stax or Motown. Were you a did you kind of grow up with a white soul inside of you, you know? Kind of no, thing? to be honest, I just <laughs> heard the phrase, if loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right and didn't know where it had come from until oh. you emailed me. <laughs> so it wasn't a musical reference, but oh. um, my dedication was to my girlfriend. I said, if the data says that loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right, uh, <laughs> which I think gets to your point that big data can't do everything. And there is a place for love and romance and doing things that aren't maximizing, which, you know, I'm not saying that my relationship isn't maximizing my, whatever I'm trying to maximize. (laughs) Right. But I was just, you know, I I just said that there are things, decisions that go beyond the data. So. Yeah. Seth, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure talking with you. Thanks for being a guest again on Behavior Grooves. Thanks so much for having me. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Seth, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our guts. No brain there. We're just talking about what's in our gut here, Tim. There you go. No rational thinking about this. No data. We're just talking from what what does our gut tell us? What does your gut tell us about this conversation, Tim? So how does it feel? I guess basically yeah, that's, that's what we want to talk about. Yeah, does yeah. It feel? Not, not what do we think about it, but how does it feel? Yeah, right? well, not, not what the data shows, not what that. Yeah. I mean, come on, let's just talk about the, the stuff. How do I feel? Are you feeling good about this conversation? <laughs> what, what do you want to talk about? We have to rely on data, dude. That's it. <laughs> well, I think we have to. So this is this is what I take out of this, right? That we too often rely on our gut that we too often dismiss or even ignore or don't even pay attention to the wonderful data and insights that are out there that will disprove something that we kind of like or want to do. And so we just ignore it or or miss it. And, And I think that we have to really be purposeful about making sure that we look at the data and that we understand the data and then we use our gut selectively, right? Yeah, and there's good reason for that. Like we have this historical, biological, genealogical, evolutionary explanation for this is because we haven't had data. (laughs) (laughs) What do you mean? We didn't have Google back in, you know, 50,000 years ago? Yeah, exactly. So we're still getting used to it. The interesting thing is, and I love that, that Seth says this, he says, don't trust your gut unless the data tells you not to trust your gut. <laughs> to trust your gut. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Trust yeah. your gut. Yeah, trust your gut. Unless it's a, and so it's like, let's just, let's really actually invest in things that will help us improve our decision making. Yeah. Because better decision making in the way that you and I believe leads to better lives, leads to more, more happiness, more, more satisfaction in our life. So using data to help us make those better decisions will naturally lead to better better. So those decisions lead to more happiness, all kinds of great outcomes. And by the way, we'll help improve our DNA too. (laughs) We'll be contributing (laughs) to having better DNA for future generations by relying on data, not just our gut. So I usually feel good about my gut decisions. 
which are influenced by my worldview. Uh huh. Do you feel the same? I mean, do you feel like your gut decisions are typically the right ones? I mean, you know, the way that you interact with your friends or your kids, you know, the guitar that you buy because it's cool, not because it has all the fancy whatever. Yeah. The the data says that this is the most reliable guitar. No, you just like the sound of it. Yeah. I'm endowed with the feeling that when I'm going to buy that guitar, it's not worth nearly as much as what this stupid asshole thinks that's worth, you know, I mean, he's charging too much for it. That's just crazy. It's a great guitar. I want it, but it's not worth what he wants. But of course, when I'm selling the guitar, Oh, you're talking endowment effect. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Then like, you know, the guy that's buying it from me has no idea how incredible this instrument is and that he should pay a lot more for it. I think that, yeah, I think there's that, that's part of the science around this, right? That we have these certain biases that influence our, our thinking and our decision-making endowment effect is one of them that kind of leads us to different, you know, uh, outcomes than what the data would suggest or confirmation bias, right? This idea that, you know, I I look at things because I have a pre-held belief and I only look at the things that support that or those are the ones that break through into my brain. And so following your gut sometimes has these biases that are influencing your thinking and feeling about things and that the data shows it differently. And so we need to be real about taking that information in and we need to do a better job of it. But that's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's easy. It's intuitive to listen to what our brains tell us is right. (laughs) Right. And it's hard to be going, well, but the data says this, but I really want to do, you know, anyway. I think that's there. These things plague us. So it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's not easy. And I don't, I'm not saying that we have to do it every time, but when it comes to making significant decisions about, for many, many episodes, we have asked our guests on behavioral grooves whether they would prefer a, a vacation with a very fixed itinerary, you know, everything planned out, or an itinerary that is z- zero plan. Mm-hmm. And of course, the clever ones have said, I like to have enough to know when I'm getting there and when I'm coming home, for instance, or, you know, I might need a spot, but I don't need to have everything planned out. And I think that that's really what the data would tell us would probably lead to more happiness is to have a little bit of fixed aspects to it, but not all fixed. But you're going off your gut there. You don't know that. (laughs) That's right. You are, you are literally, this is how I would do this. And this is the way, but who knows having a fixed itinerary might be the very best or having no itinerary at all for for each individual. We don't know that. Well, but this is even beyond that, right? This is again, if we go by what Seth is saying here, the data should inform us as to how this goes. Now, the interesting piece of this, are you, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting on my, my high horse here. I know, I know, I know, I know. And you can get on your high horse by answering this question. We talked about mappiness, yeah. right? So what does the data tell us? Because mappiness is a great project to help reveal data. Yeah, so I think, I think the mappiness project is really interesting. Right. And, and some of the different things. I think what is other the other interesting pieces is, is Seth, as he talks about in his book, there's some things that like choosing our life partners, the data is kind of done. You know what? Go with your gut because, damn it, we can't tell you long term happiness from which partner to suggest outside of a few things that aren't really 
you know, it's not how tall or good looking they are, or what kind of job they have or anything that is going to make us happy about that. So those are some interesting things. Mappiness, though, is really interesting, is this idea that, hey, there are certain things that that this project showed that will make us happier. One, being with your romantic partner and being with your friends. So spend more right. time. Here are some things that we have actual agency over. I can go and choose to yes. spend more time with these people as opposed to being at work or or doing non-things like being on my social media or whatever it would be, right? That's That's number one. Those were big. Being outside in nature, taking a walk, getting and seeing trees and going to a park, going to you know, a national, I mean, one of the wonderful things about living in America is we have all these national parks that are just gorgeous and beautiful. Do we go to them enough? No, no. Well, more people are going to them all the time, but we need to do that. We need to go out there and that enjoy the beautiful days, right? And then the other thing that I thought was interesting, and we didn't talk about this in the episode, but the idea, he talks about it in the book, is that Work is not necessarily a positive for most people. Again, the data shows that work in itself is usually a a downer, right? It it doesn't bring us happiness. However, if you're able to work with friends, then you have a 6.25 boost in your happiness level as it's rated there. And Tim, we didn't talk about this and I don't know why. You just missed this. I was going to jump on it as soon as you finished. This idea of working with music, music on Right. And yes. that was uh, your happiness score is 3.94. Yes. We just need to play yes. some damn music. Yeah. Which would not, doesn't make me happier when I'm doing concentrated work. Right. When I'm writing, for instance. But it does make me happier when I'm mowing the lawn. There you go. Yeah. So yeah. it absolutely does. And how about just listening to music, period? Right. Yeah. Go back to our, our conversations with researchers who were looking at how music lifted your spirits during the pandemic. Ernesto Mast Herrera, you know, came up uh, with some fantastic data on that. It's important to just keep listening to music. I just going to say that. So before we started talking about the Mappiness Project, though, I was getting on my high horse and I was getting on this. this, this (laughs) So you're coming back back to the damn high horse, Tim. Sorry. (laughs) Oh, my God. All right. So so this idea and this is the piece. So for listeners who want to skip the high horse, just fast forward about 15 minutes. (laughs) Listeners can't see what I'm doing with my middle finger to Tim right now over the, over the no. internet. Here we go. No, this idea that this is the piece that I, I, and I think Seth would actually agree with me here, is that. Oh, is this your gut? This is my gut going, right? Oh, okay. okay. This all is right. my gut. Is this idea that we are all individuals. And so the data yeah. shows a propensity based upon a large data set of people and, mm-hmm. and the behaviors and the information that we have from that. But any individual is going to be an individual. And so while 90% of the people might, you know, enjoy, I don't know, sex on the beach at night or in the evening, you know, with their love Warm of their weather. life and the beautiful sunset, whatever that would be. You know, there mm-hmm. might be 10% that don't. That might be crazy, those 10%, but, you know, there, there are those individuals, right? <laughs> well, and this idea that we we need to be able to look at the data, but also understand ourselves enough to be able to say, that applies to me, yes, or I need to take that in consideration. And I go back to Annie Duke and this idea that we tend to be 100% or 0% in our 
kind of confidence on different pieces. And we really need to be thinking about our decisions more as a percentage, as playing the bets, right? Thinking in bets. And so we need to use the data to say, all right, how does that adjust either up or down my confidence in the decision that I'm going to be making about this? At the same time, let's not rationalize away everything that doesn't instantly agree with our gut. That when I think about the number of times that I've, I've talked to vice presidents of sales in large organizations talking about the idea that a non-monetary award could actually be more motivational for at least a large portion of their sales team. And there's, they say, that's not my people. Yeah. My people are different. And, and then we do a, a, an A-B test with some people getting more cash and some people getting toasters and crockpots and you know, big screen TVs and golf clubs. And guess what? The people who earned the non-monetary awards, the the tangible rewards actually performed more than the people that got cash. So there are some universals that, that we can look to data to help, if nothing else, inspire some different courses of action. If not to say, this is going to be me for the rest of my life, just this could be me right now. Let me just try it. And I think the important piece that you say there is if I'm putting policies or procedures in place, I really need to be looking at the data, right? That is more, particularly when it impacts others, right? This idea for me individually, maybe having that toaster, golf set, big screen TV isn't going to be the more motivating factor than having a cash outlay of the same thing. But I'm probably in the, actually, we know this from the data. I'm in the minority. That's that, right. right. That's right. Most of your colleagues are going to actually respond more more Ex- positively. Yes. To and so we TV. need to understand that, particularly if we're in a leadership position, that our gut is often telling us wrong or, or giving us misinformation. Although, I mean, but again, this comes back and this is probably my gut, you know, and me being rationalization. It's it's hard to to think about things like you talked about you know, raising successful children is limited to your zip code. I just don't want to believe that. I don't, right. it feels right. wrong. It feels like right. all of this input that I have with my children should mean something, <laughs> right? Well, <laughs> of course, why else be a parent if you can't have some influence on your kids? And you are having some influence on your kids. Yeah. It's just the totality of the of their success in life is going to have more to do with simply growing up in the household that they're growing up in, in the zip code that they're in and the environment. You're contributing to that. Right. But I look back and I look at, at my life, right, and what makes me who I am and mm-hmm. some of the lessons that are imparted upon me by my parents are those things that when I look back on, are those it didn't you know and i lived in different zip codes i moved around we moved around to different zip codes so i mean i think again you know part of that is that but i don't know i it it, it's hard to it's hard to really put my hands around that now and again i'll i'll take that you know 95 percent piece that you know parents have this great influence and i'm going to readjust my assessment of that down to I don't know, 85, maybe 80. Oh, come um, on. Do, you could do better than I that. I don't know. It's hard. I just, I don't yeah, So, Well, context matters, right? No. If you live, I have a good friend who uh, moved 17 times by the time he graduated from high school. His family moved 17 times. So zip code, we, it would be difficult to say that zip code was the most Im- influential thing for him. Well, multitude However, of zip codes. There you go. <laughs> right, right. However, he's a 
you know, white upper middle class guy that was living in white upper class, you know, zip uh, codes. Yeah. Zip codes from time to time. So it's these these are important messages for us to consider and not just push away. There, there are limitations to data, right? There's well, there always are. the outliers, as we talked about. The data is limited in what it measures. There's a limitation in that. You know, it's going to get better and better and better. And and we're going to need to be pushing more and more of our decisions on this. But, you know, if we just followed the data, nobody would start a new business or a restaurant in particular because <laughs> right, the, the failure rate is just huge. That's so right. we, we need to, I think, and Shankar Vedanta that we, we talked to, um, in a previous episode, and he talked that he had a book, Useful Illusions, I believe it was. Useful Delusions. Delusions. Yeah. There, delusions, yeah. right? This this idea right. that that yeah, the data might say something, but it's useful to be delusional about some of that. To start in some a, situations. To start yeah. a business, I yeah. need to have this false sense that I am going to be the one out of ten restaurants that makes it, right? Yeah. And I can't sit there and be focused in that nine out of 10 restaurants are going to fail. I need to focus in that I am going to have the successful restaurant. And so I think those are some things that we need to just question that religion of data. Right. So there you go. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think that there will always be fanatics. There will always be people that just as we have uh, taking the any kind of religion, whatever kind of brand we want to put on it, whether it's the religion of data or anything else, we, it can be taken too far. It can be taken too literally. And this is an opportunity for us to try to build some context around yeah. it. I don't know. So take it too far. Should I stop being a Timberwolves fan? Should I give up my, my Timberwolves tickets? <laughs> that was my question. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, give them up. Come on, just forget it. But no, of course not. Of course not. Because you do derive some enjoyment. From an economic perspective, you derive some some pleasure, some utility. I do, I do. Well, and it's interesting because when he brought that up, I, I go back. I'm going to tell a little story. Sorry, folks, uh, but I go back. The, the the Minnesota Timberwolves. If you don't know about them, I've uh, been you know a franchise for thirty plus years. Basket, this is a basketball, basketball team, NBA for... basketball team. They have never won a championship. They've never even gotten to the finals game. They've never even gotten to the quarter. You know, the the quarterfinal, the, wow. the second last game. They have been pretty much at the basement of the the league for a while. They had a good year, a couple good years, and then they tanked. And I was been following for a long, long time. And I remember the the year that they won thirteen or fourteen games out of an 80, 80 game season. And I remember wow. going to those games because the team was wow. really bad, and not having an expectation that they would win. But going because I like the game of basketball, and so I'm going to watch the game, and I'm going to see the the star players that are there, and doing all of that. And I'm wondering if I had more pleasure that year. A, the stadium was less crowded, could get a parking <laughs> spot, didn't have to <laughs> right you, next to the door. Know, there's all sorts of different <laughs> right. pieces there. But then no, no line at the beer. No line uh, to lodge. go get any food. I mean, come on. I could hear the players talk on the on the court because there wasn't, you know, people out there. Anyway, wow. versus you know the past couple of years, they've gotten better, and so they're starting to win. They went to the playoffs this year. Yes, it wasn't the the finals, but they went into the playoffs. So I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. Which which brings me more pleasure seeing them win and having the expectation, but then they lose and uh, or just going to enjoy the game. I need to maybe reassess my thinking about how I approach the game there. Yeah. Yeah. And as much as it, as pleasurable as it is to go with the default of season tickets every year, maybe 
maybe it's time to change things up. Be novel. Maybe choose a different piece of entertainment. Okay, we're, we're skipping that, and I'm going over that one, my God. And I think that probably wraps it up for this episode. Don't you think, Tim? Do you think that's a good spot to end before we get to any decisions made? Let's just say that it was another great conversation with Seth. You know, it's it's always fun to talk to him, and he's a really bright and inquisitive guy, and it's just really yeah. fun. So so thanks to Seth for, for joining us again. It makes me think about how I'm going through my life and what decisions that I'm making based on my gut feel instead of actually looking at the facts and using my rational decision-making brain. And to reiterate your point, Seth isn't saying that following your gut is always wrong, right? So in many instances, the data doesn't just give us really good, reliable information, like choosing the long-term partner. I think that was a great example, Kurt. There are times when your gut is going to be the best choice to follow. So there, it's okay. Okay. And I, although I will gladly follow Seth's advice of living a happy data-driven life that he summarizes in the last sentence of his book, he says, have a happy, great life. Just be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex, right? <laughs> See, I just add a cool breeze to that. <laughs> there That's... you go. See? Uh. <laughs> All right. Doesn't sound bad uh, to me. And with that, Groovers, you know, as always, we hope you listen to the data this week and go out and find your groove. <laughs>